Ben waited until they were gone, then yanked open his desk drawer and held the sonogram up to the light. There was only one thought on his mind. What the hell is that kid writing? This week on Selected Shorts, Child's Play. Miss Lewis looked. Joseph stood in the circle. Hands out, close your eyes, she said, and the children obeyed. They bent their heads as if praying. She was moved by the tenderness she saw come over each of them. They were like children in a fairy tale under a spell. I'm Hope Davis, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, the program that brings you great short fiction, read live on stage at Symphony Space in New York City. All three stories on this program involve children, but in unconventional, unsentimental, and unsettling ways. First up, Simon Rich is our go-to guy for revving an ordinary event into comedic hyperdrive, and he doesn't disappoint in The Baby. A novelist struggles to finish his book before his son is born and his office becomes a nursery. But this infant comes with a plot twist. Jason Mansukis performed The Baby at the Getty Center in Los Angeles. It was understood that when the baby came, Ben's office would become the nursery. Ben would miss his beloved writing room, but he knew he was making a relatively minor sacrifice. His wife, Sue, had spent the last two years taking stomach-bloating vitamins and getting poked in the vagina by an elderly Polish gynecologist. She'd quit Claritin D and Martinis. The least Ben could do was find some other place to write his novel. Besides, by the time Sue gave birth, his book would be almost certainly finished. He was already up to the last chapter, and according to Pregnancy.com, the baby was still just the size of a small turnip. He had all the time he needed. As he leaned back in his custom writing chair, Ben found himself daydreaming about his book's reception. His novels so far had been modestly received, but maybe this one would take him to the proverbial next level. He pictured himself traveling the world with Sue and the turnip in tow on a glamorous international book tour. It was while he was reveling in this fantasy that he caught sight of his watch and remembered he had somewhere to be. Sorry I'm late, Ben said as he hustled into the little white room. I was stuck on the subway for an hour. Oh man, that sucks, Sue said. She kissed Ben on the forehead and he smiled, relieved that she'd accepted his excuse. You are just in time, Dr. Kowalski said as he squirted some goo onto Sue's belly. Sue turned to Ben and giggled. You ready? Ready, Ben said. He squeezed her hand as a black and white image took shape on a nearby monitor. It took some time getting used to, but before long, Ben was able to identify the baby's legs and torso. What's that thing, he asked, pointing excitedly to a small white smudge. Is penis, said the doctor triumphantly. It means you have boy. Whoa, Ben said as he and Sue laughed with amazement. A boy. Ben pointed at another blurry shape. What about that thing? Is pencil, said the doctor. Ben's smile faded. Did you say pencil or pen, the doctor said. It's too early to know at this stage. What does it mean, Ben asked nervously. Dr. Kowalski grinned. It means you have writer. (laughs) 
That afternoon, Ben spent some more time on Pregnancy.com. He was surprised to learn that a fetus's profession was usually apparent by the 16th week of gestation. For example, if you could detect a hoodie in the sonogram, that generally indicated your child was a coder. If your fetus held a tiny plunger, he or she was most likely a plumber. And a gavel almost certainly meant judge. Statistically, writers were less common, although the odds went up significantly if one of the parents was an Ashkenazi Jew. <laughs> ben reached into his pocket and took out the strip of black and white photographs Dr. Kowalski had given them. The images were pretty hazy. They'd agreed not to blow $1,400 on the exorbitant, non-insurance-covered 4D option. But Ben could still make out a few details, including an open moleskin notebook. <laughs> he couldn't read the baby's handwriting. Still, he could sense the work was confident. There were very few scratch-outs, and a couple of sentences were underlined. Unlike his father, the fetus didn't seem to have any difficulties focusing. Ben tossed the pictures into a drawer and slammed it shut, annoyed with himself for wasting the whole day. He turned on his laptop, opened his novel, and stared at the screen, watching the little cursor blink and blink and blink. The next day, Sue's mother, Joan, drove in from Scarsdale. She was wearing a sweatsuit and flanked by a pair of cowering teenage movers. Start clearing out everything, she shouted as she flung open the door to Ben's office. Do we have to do this right now, Ben asked her gently. Why wait, she said. The baby's going to be here before you know it. She snapped her fingers and the movers jumped swiftly into action. Packing Ben's files into cardboard boxes, Ben could feel himself begin to panic. His book was a historical novel a post-colonial epic about General Custer's last stand. He couldn't finish it without his notes. Please, he begged his mother-in-law, I'm still using everything you're taking. You're gonna have to get used to this, Joan said in a sing-songy voice. There's going to be a lot of changes around here. I'm aware, Ben said. Instead of that desk, there's gonna be a crib. Instead of that printer, there's going to be diapers. And instead of your novels, there's going to be his novels. Whoa, 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 Ben said, <laughs> waving his arms in the air. We don't know for sure the baby is a novelist. He could be any kind of writer. According to Pregnancy.com, there's a 40% chance he ends up blogging. <laughs> Joan rolled her eyes, smiling. You wish. What's that supposed to mean? She jabbed him playfully in the ribs. You're jealous of the baby. Ben forced a laugh. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Relax, she said. It's normal for new fathers to be jealous. Don't worry. When the baby's born, you'll take one look at him and know just what to do. I'm not jealous, Ben shouted. <laughs> he flushed with embarrassment. He hadn't meant his denial to come out so aggressively. He shot the teenagers a mitigating smile, but they both avoided eye contact. <laughs> Look, I'm sorry, he said. I I'm right in the middle of a chapter. Can we please just not do this right this second? The movers turned to Joan for approval. She groaned histrionically and threw her hands up in the air. Okay, okay, fine, she said, but we'll be back. 
Ben waited until they were gone, then yanked open his desk drawer and held the sonogram up to the light. There was only one thought on his mind. What the hell is that kid writing? I thought you said it was like $1,400, Sue asked as Ben rubbed her stomach with some almond oil. It's actually less, he said brightly, like $1,380. I don't know, she said. It seems kind of pricey for a slightly more detailed sonogram picture. I mean, that's like the equivalent of 5,000 diapers. Damn it, Ben snapped. Whoa, Sue said, taken aback. Honey, what's wrong? Ben thought for a second. I guess I'm just paranoid, he bluffed. I want to see him, really see him, just so I know he's 100% all right in there, you know? Just for my own peace of mind. Oh, baby, she said. I had no idea you were feeling this way. She kissed him loudly on the cheek. If that's how you feel, then of course, I support you. Dr. Kowalski was his usual upbeat self as he booted up the high-tech 4D scanner. But when he put on his glasses and squinted at the screen, his face went slack. My God, he murmured softly. My God in heaven. What's wrong, Sue asked the doctor. Dr. Kowalski swiveled around and laughed. (laughs) I am sorry, he said. Everything is fine with baby health. It is just this thing Fetus is writing. It is so engrossing. (laughs) He shook his head with amazement. I forgot there were other people in the room. Until you spoke, I was just like in it. (laughs) Sue exhaled with relief. She tried to squeeze Ben's hand, but his fingers were limp. He leapt up and hurried towards the scanner. How did he get that typewriter, he asked. (laughs) Dr. Kowalski shrugged. He's normal at 25 weeks. (laughs) Ben was disturbed to notice that the fetus was using a hip vintage Underwood. He was almost certainly a novelist and probably a literary one. What's he writing? He asked, trying to sound casual. Is historical novel, said Dr. Kowalski, about General Custer. (laughs) Ben's heart raced. He's writing about General Custer? Yes, said the doctor. But it is about so much more than that. It is suspenseful, lyrical. In some ways, it is the story of America itself. Wow, Sue said. That sounds pretty good, right, honey? Right? He stole my idea, Ben murmured as they climbed up to the fifth floor Brooklyn walk-up. How is that even possible, Sue asked. She was exhausted and a little out of breath. They can hear stuff through the womb, Ben said. He must have heard me talking about it or something. But you never talk about your work, Sue reasoned. I mean, until today, I had no idea you were starting a book about General Custer. I'm not starting it. I'm finishing it. I'm up to the last chapter, damn it. It's gonna be fine, she said soothingly. There can be two books about the same thing, right? 
but Ben had already bounded up the stairs, leaving her to walk up the final flight alone. Ben raced into his office and did some mental calculations. Even if the fetus was nearing the end of his novel, he was still stuck inside Sue's womb. He wouldn't be able to physically turn in a manuscript until after he was born. Assuming the due date held, Ben had 15 weeks to finish his draft and submit it first to publishers. He closed the door and flipped open his laptop. He was about to get to work when his phone began to buzz, an unknown Manhattan number. Dr. Kowalski, he answered wearily. I'm sorry, no, said a polite female voice. I'm from the Wiley Agency. Is this Ben Hernstein? Ben stood up with excitement. He was between literary agents and had been hoping for some time for a call like this one. Yes, it's me, he said. What's up? I'm calling about your son, she said. I tried to reach him directly, but my understanding is he hasn't yet been born. Anyway, I was wondering if he might be interested in representation. A knot of tension formed in the center of Ben's spine as the agent praised the fetus's work in progress. Apparently, an unscrupulous nurse had posted the 4D scan to Reddit and the link had gone viral. He's not interested, Ben said. Are you sure? Yes. There was a light knock on the door. Honey, Sue asked, are you okay? Just leave me alone, Ben said. I'm trying to work. Mom and the movers are here, she said. Remember to put the crib in? Ben whipped open the door. I've made a decision, he said through gritted teeth. I'm not giving up my office. Sue tilted her head, genuinely confused. I I don't understand, she said. We already talked about this. She reached out for his arm, but he pulled it out of reach. Everyone just, just leave me alone, he whined. Baby, come on. He slammed the door, giving himself over to the tantrum. No, he screamed. No, 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 no. (laughs) Ben spent the third trimester writing incessantly, barely stopping to sleep and eat. But no matter how frantically he worked, the fetus kept gaining on him. In the 36th week of Sue's pregnancy, the New Yorker published an excerpt from the fetus's unfinished book. (laughs) Ben couldn't bring himself to read the entire thing, but he forced himself to skim the first three columns. It was unbelievably intimidating. The fetus had boldly chosen to portray General Custer as gay. Not just a little gay, fully gay. He'd also included a black character and written his dialogue in dialect, but somehow managed to pull the thing off tastefully. (laughs) Ben flipped to the contributor's notes and was horrified to see that unnamed fetus was listed as a staff writer. (laughs) He cursed out loud and chucked the magazine into the garbage. As the weeks wore on, Ben found himself spending more and more time in his office and less and less time with Sue. He still massaged her belly every evening, but he rushed through the ritual like a squeegee man at a red light, (laughs) calling it quits after a couple of perfunctory swipes. (laughs) At night, while she snored in her snoogle, he pounded out page after page, racing towards his novel's denouement. He was nearing the final scene when he heard a soft knock on his door. Sweetie, Sue said, can you please come out of there? I'm busy, he said harshly. Can it wait? 
She let out a sharp intake of breath. No. Look who's decided to show up, Joan said, glaring at Ben with undisguised contempt. Ben avoided eye contact and followed his wife into the delivery room. She was lying on a gurney surrounded by nurses, anesthesiologists, and Scott Rudin, who was trying to option the fetus's book for a film. <laughs> ben gave his wife's shoulder an obligatory squeeze. You're doing great, he said. Great job. Where have you been, she asked. Ben forced a laugh. <laughs> what? He leaned down and smiled at her. What do you mean? She gripped his hand. Her eyes were soft and glossy from the drugs, and her forehead was beaded with sweat. I've missed you, she said, her voice breaking. Where did you go? Ben felt his throat go dry. He started to apologize, but before he could get out the words, Sue's body was wracked by a violent contraction. He winced as his wife grunted through it, breathing bravely through the spasm of white-hot pain. Here it comes, said Dr. Kowalski. It's a big one. The nurses guided the manuscript out of Sue's vagina, <laughs> making sure the title page was facing up. The book was called Last Stand and somehow featured an advanced blurb from George Saunders. The baby himself popped out a second later, looking smart but understated in a slim tweed blazer and a pair of Warby Parker glasses. The doctor laid him on his mother's chest. He seemed calm at first, but within moments, he began to scream. Sue tried to calm the newborn with a kiss, but the infant kept howling, a wail that built steadily in pitch like a fast-approaching siren. Is this normal, Ben asked? What, what, what's happening? I do not know, said Dr. Kowalski. His face was pale and his eyes betrayed a small degree of fear. It is louder cry than normal. I'm not sure what it is. Ben watched as the baby flailed desperately, grasping at the air with his tiny bluish fingers. He'd never seen anything look so helpless. When the infant turned toward him, his eyes wide with fear, Ben felt an odd sensation in his chest. In a flash, he knew just what to do. Ben followed his son's gaze across the room to where the nurse had set aside the manuscript. Does anyone have a pen, he asked. Joan shook her fist at him. What do you need a pen for? Just give me a pen, he said firmly. Joan raised her eyebrows, taken aback by Ben's confidence. She dug into her purse and handed him a purple bick. He wants to make a revision. <laughs> ben explained to the hospital staff, that's why he's screaming so loud. He's worried the manuscript will go out to critics before he's made the edit. He carefully placed the pen in his son's hand. The baby gestured frantically at his novel, tears streaming from his frightened eyes. I know, Ben said soothingly. I know. It's hard. He carefully flipped through the pages, making sure the baby had a chance to scan each one. They were six chapters in when the baby started bawling. Is this the page? Ben asked gently. Is it something on this page? The baby sniffled. Okay, Ben said. Shh, okay. He lowered his son to the manuscript and watched as the infant dragged his pen across the page. 
trimming the final sentence of a dense, descriptive passage. Good cut, Ben said, (laughs) impressed. The baby let out a long, contented sigh, then fell asleep in his father's arms. Ben studied his son's tiny features, his fuzzy, bulbous cheeks, his softly swelling chest. It was hard to believe this was something he'd helped create. He turned to his wife and noticed there were tears in her eyes. I love you, baby, she said. I love you too, he said. Now come on, let's get this little guy into his nursery. Jason Mantzoukas read The Baby by Simon Rich. I'm Hope Davis. When we return, a game and a birthday. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm Hope Davis. For more information about the stories you're hearing, the readers who are reading them, or about the Selected Shorts writing contest, you can go to selectedshorts.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please write and tell us what you think of today's program. To be sure you never miss a story, subscribe to the Selected Shorts podcast. When you do, you'll get episodes of our spin-off podcast, Selected Shorts, Too Hot for Radio. All you need to do is search for both shows on iTunes and hit subscribe. Our program features stories in which children are presented in unusual ways. Fiona McFarlane's Buttony starts out with a tranquil, familiar school scene, a shared ritual between a teacher and her students, but it slowly morphs into something less peaceful— with a hint of the prime of Miss Jean Brody and a hint of Lord of the Flies, Jin Ha reads Buttony. The children wanted to play Buttony. All right, Miss Lewis said, and she clapped her hands five times in the rhythm that meant they must be quiet and copy her. They were quiet and copied her. All right, she said, with that smile she reserved for the sleepy, silly mid-afternoon, we'll play. Joseph, get the button. The children approved the justice of this appointment. That was apparent in the small, satisfied sigh they made together. They watched Joseph walk to Miss Lewis's desk. Joseph was a compact, deliberate boy, and his straight black hair fell to his shoulders. He wore his uniform in a way that seemed gentlemanly, but at the same time casual. He was both kind and beautiful, and they loved him. The button lay in a special tin in the right-hand corner of Miss Lewis's top drawer. 
The children listened for the sound this drawer made as Joseph opened it. They knew that the shifting sound of the drawer opening meant largesse, gold stars or stamps, or in exceptional cases, gummy frogs, and that Miss Lewis's bounty was capable of falling on them all, but fell perhaps more often on Joseph. Alternatively, the sound of the drawer opening meant buttony. All the children handled the button with reverence, but none more so than Joseph. He was gifted in solemnity. He had a processional walk and moved his head slowly when his name was called, and it was regularly called. His attention was made more valuable by its purposeful quality. He never leaned in confidentially to hear a secret. The other children came to his ear and whispered there. Miss Lewis liked to call on him in class just to see his measured face rise up out of that extraordinary hair. His beauty had startled her until she'd met both parents, Vietnamese mother, Polish father, and then he'd seemed like the solution to something. When he held the yellow button out before him in the dish of his hands, Miss Lewis could forget the mustard-colored cardigan it had fallen off one winter day. The button was no longer limited by its cheap yellow plastic. It seemed to pulse with life. The children looked at it and at Joseph without appearing to breathe. Miss Lewis wanted her children to live in a heightened way, and she encouraged this sort of ceremony. Close the drawer, Joseph, she said, because she found she liked nothing better after admiring him, after giving him the opportunity to be admired, than to gently suggest a mundane task. Miss Lewis could close that drawer with her hip. Joseph used a shoulder. The sound of the drawer closing released the children. Now they hurried to line up at the door. They always played buttony outside. Quietly, quietly, Miss Lewis scolded, brushing the tops of their heads as they filed past her into the corridor, led by Joseph and the button. She followed them out. In the next door classroom, 3A recited times tables under the priestly monotone of Mr. Graham. The other side of the corridor shone with 5B's scaled depiction of the solar system. The children claimed to like blue Saturn best with its luminous rings, but Miss Lewis was fond of Neptune. She always put out a finger to touch its smooth crayon surface as she passed. They gathered under the jacaranda tree. The day was sweet and green. Miss Lewis leaned against the tree and crossed one ankle over the other. Her ankles were still slim, so she wasn't so very old. The children formed a circle around Joseph, and there was something very natural about this, about Joseph being in the middle of a circle. Grave Joseph. <laughs> he stood with the button as if at some kind of memorial service. Then he raised it to his lips and kissed it. No one had ever kissed the button before. And some of the other children raised their fingers to their lips. Miss Lewis pursed her mouth. One boy, she didn't see who, let out a brief scoff, but it was ignored. Put out your hands, Miss Lewis said, and the children lifted their cupped hands. Close your eyes, Miss Lewis said, closing her own eyes. She was often so tired in the mid-afternoon that this handful of seconds in which to close her eyes seemed the true blessing of buttony, to stand under the jacaranda tree in the bright day and make darkness fall, and then to hear Joseph's voice. His eyes were open, of course. 
he made his way around the circle, and as he touched each set of hands, he said, Buttony, 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 21 times. Miss Lewis counted them out, and when he was finished, all 21 pairs of hands, because none of her children were absent that day, no one was sick or pretending to be, she opened her eyes. The children stood motionless in the circle, and now their hands were closed, each set clasped together, possibly holding the button. Joseph returned to the middle of the circle. He looked up at Miss Lewis, and she looked at him, and it was as if from inside that hair he were acknowledging sorrow and solitude and fatigue, and also routine and expectation and quietness, and because he was only a boy, trust. Miss Lewis nodded, and Joseph nodded back. Open your eyes, Miss Lewis said. She loved to see all her children open their eyes at once. They always smiled, as if relieved to see the light on the other side of their eyelids. They giggled and pressed their hands together and looked at one another's hands and looked at Joseph and wondered who now had the button. Wow, that beautiful button! Mustard-colored, Joseph-kissed! Round as a planet on one side, sharp as a kiss on the other. Joseph stood with his hands behind his back. His hair hung over his eyes. It was hard to puzzle Joseph out in Buttony. The children delayed for a fond moment, as if wanting to leave him alone with his secret a little longer. Miss Lewis surveyed the circle to see who was blushing, whose head was raised higher than usual, who was smiling at having been favored with the button. She also looked for the disconsolate signs of a child who was clearly buttonless. You start, Miranda, Miss Lewis said. Miranda rubbed her right ear against her right shoulder. She swayed on one leg. Shin, she said. Shin produced a goofy smile. Then she opened her hands. There was no button there. Blake, Shin said. Blake grinned and threw his empty hands over his head. Blake said Miranda. Miranda said Josie. Josie said Osea. Osea said Ramon. Miss Lewis closed her eyes. She opened them again and thought, Jyoti. It took 11 more children to guess Jyoti. She was one of those girls you didn't suspect. Her socks slipped. She had a mole on her left cheek. It was like Joseph to have picked Jyoti. It was like Jyoti to stand burning invisibly in the circle, hardly able to believe her luck. Her hands unfolded, and there was the button. The other children craned to look. For a moment, they loved her. For a moment, she held Joseph's kiss in her hands. She stepped into the middle of the circle, and Joseph took her place. She raised the button to her lips, but didn't kiss it. Hands out, eyes closed, Miss Lewis said, and darkness fell. Don't forget, Jyoti, no giving the button to the person who was just it. Don't give the button to Joseph. It was necessary to remind the children of this rule at the beginning of every game, otherwise they were capable of handing the button over to Joseph at any opportunity. 
As it was, Jyoti picked Archie, and Archie picked Joseph. Joseph picked Mimi, who picked Miranda, who picked Joseph. The afternoon grew brighter. Planes flew overhead in all directions. The jacaranda dropped its spring flowers. Every now and then, Miss Lewis saw faces at the windows of classrooms as other children looked out to see them playing, Buttony. How long have they been playing now? These children could spend the whole afternoon hoping to be chosen by Joseph. They would never tire of it. Joseph picked Ruby, picked Ramon, picked Joseph, picked Liam S, picked Liam M, picked Joseph. Joseph said, buttony, 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 21 times. Miss Lewis closed her eyes and kept them closed when she said, open your eyes. The children in turn said, buttony, buttony, buttony. She uncrossed her ankles and crossed them again and thought, every day could pass like this quite easily. Every day could be sweet and green with the jacaranda and the children and the sun and the plain. And then at the end of them all, the sweet days and the children, would you open your eyes? Would your hands fall open? Would they be empty? Miss Lewis looked. Joseph stood in the circle. Hands out, close your eyes, she said, and the children obeyed. They bent their heads as if praying. She was moved by the tenderness she saw come over each of them. They were like children in a fairy tale under a spell. She looked at Joseph, and he was watching her, so she nodded at him. His face was impassive. He made her think of a Swiss guard at the Vatican. He received her nod by beginning to walk around the circle and each hand he touched trembled, and the children lowered their heads still further as he passed them, their hands closed like sea anemones. Joseph hadn't yet given away the button. Fifteen, nineteen, twenty-one times he said buttony. Then he raised his neutral face and looked at Miss Lewis and opened his mouth and placed the button inside it. <laughs> the button made no indentation in his cheek. Miss Lewis crossed her arms. You will solve this, she thought, and suffer for it. Joseph blinked inside his hair. Open your eyes, Miss Lewis said. The children lifted their heads into the burden of their love for Joseph. They smiled and squirmed and began to guess. Phoebe. Ruby, Usha, uh, Archie, Blake. Joseph turned toward every name as it was called, as if waiting to see who might produce the button. Liam S., Bella, Jackson, Shin. 20 names and 20 hands falling open. Only Jyoti remained. She stood with her rigid hands, with her desperate smile, with her socks slipping. No one wanted to say her name. They wanted her to give herself up. Miss Lewis, too, wanted Jody to give herself up. Eventually, Ramon said, Jyoti? Jyoti opened her empty hands. The circle laughed. Miss Lewis had found that children, as a rule, didn't like practical jokes. There was a certain kind of laughter that, in children, was a howl. Ramon took Jyoti's wrists and inspected her hands. No one looked at Joseph. 
but they all saw Jyoti, the mole on her cheek, the dusty mark where she'd rubbed her shin with the heel of her shoe, the crookedness of her teeth. Jyoti might have been crying. Ramon threw her wrists down as if discarding them. Then all the children, save Joseph and Jyoti, began to cry out, just as they'd done when they wanted to play buttony. They stamped their feet and kicked at the grass. They shook their uniforms and looked up into the branches of the jacaranda tree as if they might find the button there. The circle broke open as they shook and kicked and shouted, and faces appeared again in the classroom windows. Miss Lewis watched Joseph stand there with his mouth closed and his hands behind his back. Although the circle had broken, he seemed still to be in the middle of it. He was only a boy, and he was alone, and proud, and terrible. Miss Lewis stepped away from the tree. She would order him to open his mouth and spit out the button. She would make him say what he had done, how he had stood and watched the children guess. She would shame him. And the faces in the windows would see it. But first, she must settle the children. She clapped her hands five times in the rhythm that meant they must be quiet and copy her. They were quiet, but they didn't copy her. She saw the way they looked at her. She saw their fury. Ramon came first to pull at her pockets. Then Josie, who had lost a tooth that morning, her mouth was open as she searched the grass at Miss Lewis's feet. Osea and Mimi scratched at the scabbed bark of the tree. Miss Lewis swatted and slapped, but the children still came. They opened her hands and dug in her elbows. Liam S. squatted to peer up her skirt, and when she crouched to stop him, it was Jyoti who pulled the pins from her hair as if the button might be hidden in its roots. Now Miss Lewis cried out. She lifted her head and saw three A's Mr. Grant running toward her, and Joseph was behind him, not quite running, not altogether, but like a shadow, long and blank and beautiful. Jin Ha performed Fiona McFarlane's Buttony. I'm Hope Davis. Our final story is by the Israeli writer Etgar Karat, who's become a particular friend to the series. It was read at the Getty Center in Los Angeles and introduced by another favorite of ours, Amy Bender. Dark, absurd, and earnest all at once, that's what Karat does so well and what we'll hear in tonight's story about a unique mother-son relationship. Without repeating himself, he's able to make new the spirit of spontaneity, to make the unexpected happen on the page over and over again. This is a spontaneity where craft appears so natural and fresh, it seems like we're watching the birth of it right as we're hearing it, like the story itself is emerging from Zeus's head, these Athena stories full of sad and funny wisdom, each one. Present tense is a piece of it. And there's almost a delighted, methodical quality as he moves from one moment to another, investigating each possibility as it presents itself. He will gladly follow whatever happens, good or bad. With Carrot, it's always yes and, just like the core rule of improv. But then, since the writing can be revised, it's also as crystal clear as can be and doesn't have any of that randomness an improv often has before it gets to the good stuff. 
But to sit and listen or to sit and read an Eckhart Carrot story is to have that illusion that the story is unfolding right now in real time. But not only that he's telling it right now, but even somehow that the events of it are happening right now as we hear it. That the artist is conjuring all of it for us tonight for the first time. This, of course, is a powerful trick, but he makes it utterly convincing. And then any realization we have in the story, our laughs and our huh sounds and the movement of our hearts, happens fresh. That was Amy Bender speaking at the Getty Center in Los Angeles. Now we'll hear Andy Richter perform Edgar Carrot's Crumb Cake. For my 50th birthday, Mom takes me to Fat Charlie's Diner for lunch. I want to order a pancake towel with maple syrup and whipped cream, but Mom asked me to order something healthier. It's my birthday, I insist. My 50th birthday. Let me order the pancakes, just this once, instead of cake. But I already baked you a cake, Mom grumbles. A crumb cake, your favorite. If you let me eat the pancakes, I won't even taste the cake, I promise. After thinking for a minute, she says grudgingly, I'll let you eat pancakes and cake, too, just this once, only because today's your birthday. Fat Charlie brings me the pancake tower with a lit sparkler on top. He sings happy birthday in a hoarse voice, waiting for Mom to join in, but all she does is shoot the pancake tower an angry glance. So I sing with him instead. How old are you? Charlie asks. Fifty, I say. Fifty years old and still celebrating with your mom. He gives an appreciative whistle and goes on. I envy you, Mrs. Pikoff. My daughter is half his age, and she hasn't wanted to celebrate her birthday with us for ages. We're too old for her. What does your daughter do? Mom asked without taking her eyes off the pile of pancakes on my plate. I don't exactly know, Charlie admits. There's something in high tech. My son is fat and unemployed, <laughs> Mom says in a half whisper. So don't be so quick to envy me. Uh, he's not fat, Charlie mumbles, trying to smile. Compared to Charlie, I'm really not fat. <laughs> and I'm not an employee either, I add, my mouth full of pancakes. Sweetie, Mom says, organizing my pills in a box for $2 a day does not qualify as a job. <laughs> congratulations, Charlie says to me. Hearty appetite and congratulations, and back slowly away from our table as if he were retreating from a growling dog. When mom goes to the restroom, Charlie comes back. I want you to know that you're doing a really good deed by living with your mom and everything. After my father died, my mother lived alone. You should have seen her. She burned out faster than the sparkler on your pancakes. Your mother can gripe till tomorrow, but you're keeping her alive, and that is a good deed right out of the good book. Honor thy father and thy mother. How are the pancakes? Fantastic, I say. It's too bad I can't come here more often. If you're in the neighborhood, you're always welcome to drop in, Charlie says and winks at me. I'll be glad to give you more for your charge. I don't know what to say, so I just smile and nod. Really, Charlie says, it would make me happy. My daughter hasn't eaten my pancakes for years. She's always on a diet. I'll come, I tell Charlie, I promise. Great, Charlie says, nodding. And I promise not to say a word about it to your mother. Scout's on her. On the way home, we stop at 7-Eleven, and Mom says that because it's my birthday, I can choose one thing as a present. I want a bubblegum-flavored energy drink, but Mom says I've had enough sugar for the day, so I ask her to buy me a lottery ticket. 
But she says that on principle, she's against gambling because it teaches people to be passive. And instead of doing something to change their destiny, all they do is sit on their fat behinds and wait for luck to save them. You know what the chances are of winning the lottery, she asks. One in a million, even less. Just think about it. We have a better chance of being killed in a car accident on the way home than you do of winning. After a brief silence, she adds, but if you insist, I'll buy it for you. I insist, and she buys it for me. I fold the lottery ticket twice, once along the width and once along the length, and I shove it into the small front pocket of my jeans. My dad died in a car accident on the way home a long time ago when I was still in my mother's womb. <laughs> so go figure. At night, I want to watch the basketball game. The Warriors are really good this year. That Curry is so hot on the three-point shots, I never saw anything like it. He shoots without even looking at the basket, and the balls drop into the hoop one after the other. Mom won't let me. She says she read in TV Guide that there's a special about the poorest places in the world on National Geographic. <laughs> Can't you skip it for me, I ask? After all, today's my birthday. But mom insists that my birthday started yesterday and ended at sunset, so now it's just a regular day. <laughs> While mom watches the program, I go into the kitchen and organize her pills in the box. She takes more than 30 pills a day, 10 in the morning and 20-something at night. Pills for blood pressure, cholesterol, or heart, thyroid. So many pills that just swallowing them makes you full. Really, I don't think there's a disease in the world that she doesn't have, except for AIDS, maybe, and lupus. After I finish organizing the pills in the box, I sit down next to her on the couch and watch the program with her. They're showing a humpback kid who lives in the poorest neighborhood in Calcutta. At night, before he goes to sleep, his parents tie him with a rope so he'll sleep bent over. That way, the narrator explains, his hump will get bigger, and when he grows up, it'll make people feel really sorry for him and give him a strong advantage in the tough competition with other beggars in the city. I'm not someone who cries a lot, but that kid's story is really sad. You want me to switch to basketball? Mom asks in a soft voice and ruffles my hair. No, I say, wiping my tears with my sleeve and smiling at her. This is an interesting program. It really is an interesting program. I'm sorry I said mean things about you in the diner, she says. You're a good boy. It's okay, I say and kiss her on the cheek. It didn't bother me at all. The next morning, I go to the eye doctor with Mom. He shows her a chart with letters on it and asks her to read them out loud. She shouts the letters she can see and insists on guessing the ones that she doesn't as if a lucky guess will help cure her. The doctor adds another pill to her collection to be taken once a day for the glaucoma. After the doctor, we go to Walgreens to buy the new pill, and so I won't forget, I add it to the box in the compartment for the night pills as soon as we get home. Then I change into my tracksuit, take my basketball, and go out to the children's court. I'm not a great player, but if the kids there are young enough, they're sure I'm a god. <laughs> a few years ago, I had a run-in with a red-headed mother with tattoos who got stressed because I was playing with her son. The minute she saw me on the court with him, she told me in a really loud voice that I shouldn't dare touch him. I explained to her, according to the rules of basketball, you're allowed to touch your opponent when you're guarding him. And she had nothing to worry about. I knew I was bigger and stronger than her cute little son. And anyway, even when I'm guarding, I do it carefully. 
But she, instead of listening, just got even angrier. And don't you dare call my son cute, you pervert! She screamed and threw her paper cup of coffee right in my face. Luckily, the coffee was lukewarm, but still, it stained my clothes. After that incident, I didn't go back there for a few months. But then the playoffs started, and when you see good games, it makes you want to play, too. I didn't want to go back there because I was afraid the redhead with the tattoos would still be there and start screaming again. So instead, I asked Mom if we could buy a basket of our own and hang it in the yard. That was the first time I told Mom about what happened on the basketball court, and she got very quiet, the way she always does when she's really mad. And she told me to put on my tracksuit and take my basketball, and we left the house. On the way to the court, she told me that all the parents of the children who play with me there should thank me because there aren't many grown-ups in the world who still have enough gentleness and goodness in them to play like I do with children and teach them things. Sweetie, she said, her voice cracking, when we get to the court, if you see that stupid tattooed monkey again, would you tell me okay? I nodded, but in my heart, I was praying that the tattooed redhead wouldn't be there because I knew that even though mom is old, she could easily smash that woman's head with a cane. <laughs> when we reached the court, mom sat down on a bench and checked out all the other parents like a bodyguard trying to spot an assassin. At first, I had an empty half court to myself and just dribbled and shot baskets alone. But very quickly, the kids on the other half of the court asked me to join them because they were missing a player. At the end of the game, when I made the winning basket, I looked over at Mom, who was still sitting on the bench pretending to be reading something on her cell phone, and I knew she'd seen everything and was proud. Now, when I reach the court, there are no kids there, and I just take some lazy shots that miss the basket, but after about 15 minutes, I get bored. Fat Charlie's Diner is barely a five-minute walk away, and when I get there, it's almost empty, and Charlie is really glad to see me. Hey, hoop star, he says. Were you playing basketball? I shrug and tell him that there was no one on the court. Ah, it's still early, he says and winks at me. But by the time you finish the mountain of pancakes I'm going to make you, there will definitely be a few people there. Charlie's pancakes are really fantastic. When I finish eating, I thank him and ask again if he's sure it's okay for me to eat there without pain. Whenever you want, hoop star, he says. The pleasure is all mine. And you won't tell my mom about the pancakes, right? I ask him before I leave. Don't worry, Charlie laughs and pats his big stomach. Your secret is buried deep in my pot belly. <laughs> the big lottery drawing takes place on Saturday nights. Mom reminds me about it right after she takes her pills. Are you in suspense, she asks. I shrug. She tells me again that my chance of winning is less than one in a million, and then asks me what I would do if I happened to win. I shrug again, and I say, I would definitely send some of the money to that humpback kid we saw on TV. Mom laughs and says, that film was made more than 10 years ago, and it's very possible that the humpback kid is now a humpback grown-up, and he's begged so much that he doesn't need favors from anyone. Or maybe he died from one of those diseases those people get because they don't wash their hands. Never mind the children from the National Geographic, she says, and ruffles my hair the way I like her to. What would you want for yourself? I shrug again because I really don't know. If you win, you'll probably move to a big place of your own and buy a season ticket to sit in the VIP box for all the Warriors games and hire a stupid Filipina to organize my medications instead of you, Mom says, giving me a not very happy smile. 
I actually like organizing mom's pills for. It relaxes me. I, I don't like going to games, I say. Remember when we went to visit Uncle Larry in Oakland and he took me to a game? We stood in line for almost an hour and the ushers at the entrance yelled at everyone who went inside. Then no season ticket, Mom says. So what do you think you'd buy? Maybe a TV from my room, I say, but a really big one, not like the one we have in the living room. Sweetie, Mom says, the first prize is $63 million. If you win, you'll have to think of something else besides a large screen TV. This is my first time ever watching a lottery draw. There's a kind of transparent machine full of ping pong balls and each ball has a number on it. The woman operating the machine is blonde and she smiles nervously the whole time. Mom says that her bust isn't real and you can see right away that she's had Botox injections because nothing on her forehead moves. <laughs> then mom says she has to go to the bathroom. This year she's developed a serious problem with her bladder and that's why she has to go to the bathroom every half hour. Good luck, sweetie. If you see you've won while I'm peeing, give a yell and I'll run out with my underpants down, she says with a laugh and gives me a kiss before she gets up from the couch. But don't yell for no reason, you hear me? You remember what the doctor said about my heart. The blonde with the nervous smile presses a button that turns on the machine. I look at her forehead. Mom's right, nothing moves there. The first ball that drops out of the machine has the number 46 on it, which is the number of our house. The second one has the number 30, which is the age mom was when dad died and I was born. The third ball has the number 33, which is the number of pills mom took every day before she got the prescription for the glaucoma pill. And the fourth ball has the number one, which is the number of sparklers Charlie lit on my pancake tower. It's weird how all the numbers the blonde with the frozen forehead chooses are connected to my life and mom's and how all those numbers are written on my ticket. I don't even check the last two numbers. I just keep thinking about what would make a woman inject herself with stuff that paralyzes her forehead. And how sad it would be if mom and I had to live in separate houses instead of together. When mom comes back to the couch, I'm already watching the sports channel, but she insists that we switch to Fox because it's time for the evening news broadcast. The newscasters talk about a suicide bombing in Pakistan that killed 67 people. They don't mention the name of the city where the bombing happened, and I just hope it isn't Calcutta. Mom explains to me that Calcutta is in India and Pakistan is a different country, even worse than India. The things that people do to each other, she says, as she gets up and starts walking slowly toward the kitchen. Terror attacks on TV always make her hungry. Mom asks if I want her to make us some scrambled eggs and I tell her I'm hungry, but not for eggs. Want the last slice of crumb cake I baked for your birthday, she calls from the kitchen. You'll let me eat something sweet even though it's nighttime already, I ask. Usually she's very strict about things like that. Today's a special day, she says. Today is the day that you didn't win the lottery. You deserve a consolation prize for that. Why are you so sure I didn't win, I ask. Because I didn't hear you yell like you promised, she laughs. Well, even if I screamed, you wouldn't have heard. You're half deaf, I say, smiling back at her. Half deaf and half dead, Mom says with a nod as she puts the last slice of cake on the table before me. But tell me the truth, sweetie. Do you know anyone else in the whole wide world who can make a crumb cake as delicious as mine? Thank you.
Andy Richter read Edgar Carrot's Crumb Cake at the Getty Center in Los Angeles. I'm Hope Davis. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our radio producer is Sarah Montague. Matthew Love is our literary consultant. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our mix engineer is Deborah Daughtry. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, sponsor of the Ray Award for the Short Story. Support is also provided by the Schubert Foundation, the Seedlings Foundation, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Sherman Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Joseph and Joan Cullman Foundation for the Arts. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts, and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of the New York State Legislature. Additional support for this program comes from this station. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. <laughs>